Hi, this is Dan Sullivan. I'd like to welcome you to the Multiplier Mindset Podcast. Today's Free Zone success story is a long, long time friendship and relationship and it's with Steve Crane. And Steve Crane is one really, really smart character, you know, and uh, I've known this for more than 20 years. And Steve has done a lot of things, but he's got two great skills. He's a tremendous strategic thinker, and he's very, very good with technology. In short, what you're going to hear in Steve's story is that he's created the first, and I think this is absolutely the first, the first totally entrepreneurial global R&D lab for breakthroughs in healthcare and medicine. So he's got all these successful companies, and they're in about 15 different areas of medicine, and they're all connected to each other. That's the front end, and then the back end, he's got a big, big investment fund where corporations, individuals, institutions write big checks to take a little bit of the action of each of these companies. It's like an R&D mutual fund. I mean, just a tremendous fund, and Steve's right in the middle and he's just got such a great story to tell. Yeah, you know, first of all, Dan, it's always great to spend time digging back into our thinking about what it is we're building, both at Strategic Coach and Startup Health. It's without a doubt been an incredibly crazy eight or 10 weeks, maybe eight or nine weeks probably at this point, that we've been in the middle of this pandemic. And I've got to say that within probably the first couple of days, definitely within the first week of everything shifting back in early March, I almost was watching in slow motion the acceleration of time. And almost the subsequent weeks afterwards, I watched decades occur in a matter of weeks. And there was a saying that I had heard and I never really got to see in action the way I did over the past couple of months. And it was the saying around the notion that Oftentimes, for decades, nothing happens. And then in weeks, decades happen. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what it felt like. And as a result, really, Startup Health obviously was always built for this moment, but didn't realize what the moment would look like or when it would come. And so as I unpack and we've unpacked kind of and almost re-optimized every part of the operation over the last eight weeks, it's become apparent to me that we were already in position. And so we're tightening bolts and moving things around and in fact, dusting off a couple of things that we had done a couple of years ago that just weren't quite ready, but they are now. They are now. Yeah. At a summit, a special summit meeting of the Free Zone Frontier entrepreneurs that we did in Chicago, it was the fall before last. So it was 2018 and your team was there. And throughout the day, we were discussing things and going through exercises and a thought occurred to me. I said, I'd like this to sort of establish what the context is for the interview here. I said, Steve, I think you've created something unique in the world. And I think it's the first global entrepreneurial R&D lab that consists of cutting edge actual implementers of new healthcare breakthroughs in the world. And I said, the way you've set it up, it seems to me that I can't imagine anyone else even thinking of the idea, but actually making it real and then actually making it grow in the world. And first of all, do you accept that? Mm -hmm. As I keep repeating yeah. it, and you know, I just wear <laughs> my, 
my tendency is just to say something and then wear people down with it until they give up and say, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. But talk about that, whether that accurately describes how your startup network of close to 300 entrepreneurial companies around the world really responded to the pandemic. Yes, sir. I do accept your acknowledgement of and definition of what we do. In fact, now more than ever. And just for context, you know, in 2011, we launched Startup Health really on a multi-decade mission to collaborate with entrepreneurs all around the world using our unique model for really convening what I call this global army. We call this global army of health transformers who are dedicated to achieving health moonshots. And the very nature of the you know, framework for how we were thinking about this was that healthcare was broken. It's been broken for a long time. And I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations had to unfortunately put up with a broken healthcare experience, a broken healthcare system. And it wasn't just here in the US, it was all over the world. And our thesis was very much that nobody knows what's going to work and what's not going to work, but we do know that it's not going to be done alone. And so if we can take a multi-decade vision of really investing in and supporting and collaborating with entrepreneurs who have the right mindset, um, the long-term mindset, to not only work on achieving health moonshots, but work on achieving health moonshots together, then we can kind of break through and shift the power from the big bureaucratic organizations and governments and other organizations that are suppressing innovation and suppressing a lot of things. And by sheer volume of numbers and sheer volume of collaborations far exceeding what anyone could do alone, we would succeed. And I want to be clear, we talked about a 2040 vision here, right? 20, 30 years of good, long, hard work and never losing focus of this long-term nature. And so the idea of it being an R&D lab really wasn't the thinking at the time. I think it was incredibly not only helpful to us to kind of frame it that way 18 months ago, but I think it helped really over the last eight weeks see exactly what you were talking about because over the subsequent nine years from the date of launch, we now have 335, Dan, because we've actually added six new entrepreneurs and companies to Startup Health in the last three weeks that are specifically related to helping with COVID-19 or the pandemic or the pandemic response. I think speaking to the, the opportunities here, but we have 335, 336 companies in 26 countries working, collaborating around these health moonshots. And each one of the moonshots that we defined over the last several years got to 11 moonshots. So we had everything from ending cancer to curing disease to bringing access to care to everyone in the world. About a year and a half ago, we added the addiction moonshot, addiction and opioid crisis moonshot, seeing a whole bunch of activity around entrepreneurs working on that. And two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, we launched the pandemic response moonshot. And the thesis behind every one of these moonshots is the same as it was back in 2011. Work together with other entrepreneurs in a systematic fashion with not only other entrepreneurs, but other organizations that want to support those entrepreneurs, linking arm in arms, we can do this together. And the experiments, as you call them, right, the R&D, is in so many forms being, up until eight weeks ago, met with a ceiling of resistance by organizations, by governments, and everyone else unwilling to adopt some of those technologies and those breakthroughs. And so what's fascinating to me is that 
the regulatory environment, the sales cycles, the adoption, the use of the companies that were in Startup Health and the companies being built in Startup Health literally up until eight weeks ago, thought they were in for a long haul of penetrating through the fear and the resistance that existed from those that needed to adopt. So a hospital system willing to bring in digital technologies into every aspect of care, keeping people at home longer, if not always, to be cared for, maybe even better than being in person. All of those things were thought about the future. And so it was R&D. And now flash forward just a couple of weeks and the adoption rates went from, I'm going to give you an example of one of the biggest hospital systems in the country, 6% telemedicine visits to 99% telemedicine visits. And there's no going back. And the hospital systems and the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies and the governments and the providers all around the world need to now realize, and I think that many of them have, we're calling this the great realization that the future is here today and we need to move faster to bring these technologies to bear. And so the good news is this R&D lab, so to speak, that we've been building over the last eight years has now flipped into full-on adoption of the technologies and the solutions and the breakthroughs that have been in the wings and waiting for this moment. Yeah. Well, the thing that I find quite extraordinary, and I have a question that will help our viewers actually visualize this. So you have 335 at present. We don't know what's going to be true next week. So let me see one of the moonshots. And I understand the moonshots there. This, you know, in our terms, it's like a 25-year commitment just to keep at it and keep growing and keep co-creating and collaborating. So if you divide your 335 up and you have right now, by my count, you had 11 and then you added another one last year and you add a new one this year, because it seems to me that the pandemic response is going to be an ongoing thing. This is not a one-off type of thing. If I take 335, how many of the companies together would be working on one moonshot? Well, first of all, companies can work on and are applicable in more than one moonshot at a time. So somebody could be working on women's health and also access to care. But there's anywhere from let's call it on the low end, you know, 25 companies all the way up to over 125 companies. What's interesting about this pandemic response moonshot is that overnight, and we actually had a pandemic response summit uh, gathering of all of our companies in mid-March, maybe it was like the 15th or 17th of March, I forget the exact date. And we actually shared the Dan Sullivan Scary Times Manual and success strategies with them because nobody could even comprehend how quickly they woke up and they were instantly relevant or irrelevant in the minds of their customers, in the minds of the patients, in the minds of the people they were talking to. And in a matter of weeks, shifted to becoming pandemic moonshot companies, pandemic response companies, pandemic care companies. At last count, there were a hundred and I believe 50 160 of our companies with pandemic response or pandemic care or pandemic relevant solutions, of which 80 are in market being adopted and used by governments, by healthcare providers, by hospitals in real time. So first of all, the moonshot didn't exist six weeks ago. 
And we opened it up with, you know, over 100 and now there's over 150. And I think, by the way, this is really people retooling Mm -hmm. and almost adjusting what they were working on to work in this new environment. Many of them are already digital health and technology driven, but they had to become relevant and adopt at the speed at which it was happening, the ability to serve customers now in this new environment where people aren't going into a doctor's office, people aren't going in. We had a company that had implemented remote monitoring in nursing homes and long-term care facilities, really monitoring movement, monitoring if people get out of bed. He had to adopt and adjust for contact tracing in these environments and now has 10X'd his customer base opportunities and now is scaling up for that in a matter of weeks. And so again, this is about being nimble enough to shift into and being able to apply your solutions in different moonshots. So we believe at scale, there should be thousands of companies and entrepreneurs in each one of the moonshots working together. And it's interesting because the metaphor we've always used for the moonshot, of course, was the moon landing in the 60s, right? It was this notion that in 1961, President Kennedy makes this proclamation about we're going to go to the moon and bring an American you know, to the moon and back safely by the end of the decade. And I had dissected this notion that it wasn't done just by NASA. And it wasn't, by the way, just done by the United States. It was a global effort. There were 400,000 people. There were 20,000 companies. There was billions of dollars in today's world, hundreds of billions of dollars invested. And the Apollo 1 to Apollo 2 to Apollo 4 to Apollo 8 to Apollo 11 were iterations of being able to get it done. And so thinking about that as, you know, pandemic response or cancer, it's the same idea. But I recognized over the last eight weeks, we were missing an important ingredient. And it was the ingredient of actually what instigated President Kennedy to make the proclamation in 1961. And it was fear. And -hmm. it was the fear that the Russians were going to beat us to the moon. They had gotten into space and they were on our tails. And it was that fear which motivated it. It wasn't hope of getting to the moon. It was the fear of somebody beating us there. Great instigator. And I think we now with this pandemic, in healthcare especially, I think we have the same thing, by the way, in education. We have our fear. It is that this new world, both economically and health-wise and politically, is now in the reality of everyone's day-to-day life. And if we don't adopt these technologies, if we don't work on these technologies, if we don't bring these solutions, if we don't collaborate faster and exponentially accelerate the achievement of these moonshots, we can see with real you know, eyes and ears and noses today and feel what it's going to be like. And I think that reality has set in and changed everything. Yeah. I was talking to Tucker Max, who's a collaborator with me. We have a 10-year, 10-book major book project with Hay House out of California. And Tucker said, you know, it's really interesting that you bring up the Apollo trip. And same thing for the Manhattan Project that created the atom bomb. I mean, Nothing focuses the mind like fear. (laughs) But he said, you know, this is the first time that human beings as a whole have a common enemy. You know, this is like H.G. Wells. This is like the alien, you know, the virus is an alien. And I was talking to John Farrell, who is our IP lawyer in Silicon Valley, and he's very connected with biolabs that are working on 
vaccines. And he said that this is an especially sneaky virus. You know, he said the more they find out about this virus, it's almost like this virus has talked to all the other viruses that previously attacked humanity. And he said the big thing is to get past the killer cells in the human body. He said that that's why, you know, disproportionately it attacks older people because our killer cells are sitting on the back porch kind of, you know, enjoying the evening while they go by where baby's killer cells are alert. They're like little watchdogs, anything that comes by. So the big thing is that I sense that we're just being introduced to an aspect of our future right here, that this virus thing, because we're interconnected globally like this, and it can go across borders very, very quickly, that this is going to be a common factor. So I'm going to leave everybody here on their seats totally excited, and then I'm going to take you back 20 years. You know, it's law school, it's getting out there into the dot-com revolution. You're always had a really, really good instinct for technology being a part of the future, Steve. So just talk about what was true in 1997 that actually connects to 2020. What was in your mind back then? It's actually 1994. I'm in my third year, beginning my third year in law school, um, using this thing called the internet. Not a lot of people were using it. Not a lot of people knew how to use it. I had built an online service locally in Delaware with a professor of mine. I would call it, you know, my first entrepreneurial business. I had done entrepreneurial things before that, but my first entrepreneurial business. And I could see that the things seemingly were changing very quickly with people connecting to the internet more easily. And that famous Netscape IPO people think was the day, you know, the internet era was ushered in. But a couple of years before that, it started really getting the ground laid. And I knew that I couldn't just sit by and go through, not only did I not want to become a lawyer anyway, I knew I had to graduate, but I didn't really want to practice. I wanted to get involved in this new thing that I knew was going to be huge and transformational called the internet. I saw the shift happening from what they used to call multimedia and other things to this connected world where we would be connected by the internet. And I think I've told the story on this podcast before about this crystal ball that my professor showed me and my parents about what the future might look like if I was to move to New York and actually launch an online service for lawyers with the National Law Journal, which was a job offered to me to go up and finish law school in New York. And sitting there in 1994, I remember looking into this crystal ball that my professor, Mr. Herman, had brought to dinner with my parents and I, because I was trying to convince my dad, quite frankly, to let me move to New York and finish law school. And I looked into this crystal ball and I saw a future where everybody was going to be connected and how transformational it was going to become and that this was a moment in time that would never again exist and that it was going to define literally the future. At that moment and during that dinner, not only getting my father's permission, which I seemingly just wanted, didn't need, but wanted, I ended up packing my bags and moving to New York and launching the online service, getting funding for my first business, which I actually ended up leaving the law journal to build called Webstakes. And that became the vehicle for my first entrepreneurial career business, I should say, which I ended up, of course, taking public and selling and joining Strategic Coach in the midst of 
helped really open up my eyes to the fact that while I didn't realize it, this new world changed everything. The internet changed everything. And I knew it, but I was still in my 20s. And so I don't think I had the context that, of course, I would learn that I now have and that others have when you live through different moments and get to see different transitions. And so I think from 1994 to 2000, when the beginning of the dot-com bust and then ultimately 9-11 opened up my eyes to these moments that are defining periods that erase everything prior to it and redefine kind of that period. And so when I think about the internet being created, when I think about 9-11 and the dot-com bust, when I think about even 2008 and I think about now, I think about those many blips and changes in the world and that I think the skill that, quite frankly, you opened up my eyes to in 2001 with the Scary Times Manual was this notion of forgetting about who you were, forgetting about what you were doing, think about what you are now going forward. And so I think this contextual relevance that I now have today going through this, that I'm even seeing in a lot of younger entrepreneurs or people who aren't as experienced with these different moments in time, that these are moments where everything changes and you could either be on one side of it or in the other. You could be on the side of creating or you could be on the side of complaining. And so therefore, I think that context of 94 and 2000, 2001, 2008, and now 2020, you end up with the, I think, perception, at least for me, that this is part of life, but it's about how you deal with it, live through it, and thrive through it that really matters most. Yeah, Steve, take what uh, you know you had developed as a real, not only a, a deep interest in the internet, but actual very successful skills. One of them is timing because you got out of the dot-com revolution <laughs> when it was good to get out, but you had that capability. And then talk about where it connected to healthcare. So I think the truth of the matter is that healthcare and making an impact on people's lives and kind of being more of a mission-driven entrepreneur was clearly not in my mind in 1994, 1995. I think I've now kind of see the difference between a mercenary entrepreneur and a missionary entrepreneur, one who's driven by just a goal, whatever it is, of money or fame or fortune or things that ultimately are just a goal for goal's sake, which is great, fine, totally. I have a lot of friends and know a lot of people very successful in that realm. But then this notion of being mission-driven, and I've told the story of my brother who's a head and neck cancer surgeon. He's the chief medical officer of Startup Health. But I had this experience in 1999 when one of my mercenary goals was to be on television. And my partner now, Unity, who was built, running the, the marketing group at WebStakesAndPromotions.com, arranged for us to be on the Today Show. And it was like Al Roker and, and all the folks there, Katie Couric, to give away a million dollars to somebody who could get a basket from all the way across the court. I thought it was my moment. I finished being on TV, felt really proud. And I got back to the office and I called my brother and I was like, Howard, Howard, did you see me on TV? And he literally was like, I was actually in the OR saving someone's life. No, I wasn't watching you on TV. And it was like this punch in my stomach at the moment. I was like, you know, and again, I was 29. So I don't think I quite grasped what I could do about it for another five years. But moving into healthcare five or six years later was really a direct result of this notion of doing something with my skills, with my unique abilities 
with my passion for entrepreneurship in this notion that would be as impactful as what my brother was doing and saving and impacting people's lives, but doing it at a scale where I think we can improve, especially with the startup health collaboratory and the companies and the entrepreneurs. And I think the model we built, we can really improve the health and well-being of billions of people's lives now, all instigated by these kind of little personal things that happened Mm -hmm. that opened up my eyes to now what I see clearly every day in the eyes of entrepreneurs who are working on transforming healthcare because of their mother or their father or their sister or their brother or their child or their friend or themselves having an experience. And the gift that I was given was actually, in addition to that conversation with my brother in 99, was one of my investors and board members, Ian Berg, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2006. And that gave me the opportunity to actually bring my talents to healthcare because we ended up launching a company to help solve what he was working on and going through, I'm sorry, with his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer was how do you bring the wisdom of doctors and clinicians and other people who've had pancreatic cancer to help him live longer than he did. And so Organized Wisdom, which was the predecessor of Startup Health, was launched as a result of that. And so that feeling of even being useful to Ian and his family, Mm -hmm. that feeling of helping people and Mm -hmm. saving their lives, married with a global army of other people like myself who feel the same way as I do, I think is really what ended up defining and helping us catapult this in 2011 and now be at the position we are today in 2020, which is feeling like we've been practicing for the last nine years for this moment. Steve, January, February of 2020, you're looking at the year 2020 and you've got big plans. Talk about what you were seeing then, and then we're going to compare it with what you're seeing two months later. So we actually had our eighth annual Startup Health Festival in early January in San Francisco. It was, you know, a kind of annual celebration of the progress of the previous year and the excitement and vision for the next year. We've gathered a growing global army over each year, that started with 10 entrepreneurs in 2000 and actually started with my partner Unity and I in 2012, two of us. In 2013, there was 10 of us. In 2014, there was 30 of us. And each year I kept coming back with a larger and larger army and attracting a larger and larger community of people who wanted to watch and see the progress that that army had made. And on stage this year, like all years, we kind of give a state of the union, so to speak, about not only measurements of progress of the past year, but our vision for the next year. And we've been talking about this health moonshot collaboration model that we've developed, this idea of really using a collective army to make impact through a very clear series of things that we do together. One is that we align incentives and we invest in every entrepreneur in every company in startup health. In fact, you can't pay to be in startup health. We have to be accepted and invited in and we invest in every company. And the idea is we're aligned with their success and failure. And then we unite them into this army. And as part of this collective army and global army, you now are no longer alone. And then we very carefully begin to tell your story of progress each day and each quarter and each year sharing the progress. And we hopefully help you attract the kinds of investors and customers and partners you need to be successful. And it's a flywheel. And on stage in January, we kind of showed a beautiful flywheel of this is what the startup health moonshot collaboration model looks like. And 
here is the progress. And I shared all the progress. And I kind of talked about the next decade, not the next year, in some of the things I was talking about. And that this was going to be the decade where some of the adoption that we were all hoping for in the last decade that didn't occur would occur. We were hoping that the governments, that the leadership at hospitals, that the leadership in pharma and the leadership in insurance companies and the patients would take control of this moment and opportunity to accept and bring on and adopt the innovation that the army of entrepreneurs are working on. And we very much were almost trying to make sure that people were patient enough to recognize that they were going to have to do this for a long time before people would wake up and realize that we have to do this to save lives. We have to do this to extend lives. We have to do this to improve the quality of our life. And so nobody, especially in January of this year, was talking about, we were weeks away from the, what I thought decade or maybe even two decades it was going to take for people to realize it to occur. Now, not everybody's realized it yet, by the way, whether they recognize it or not, it's changed. But I feel like nobody really could have even predicted how quickly the moment would come, but it was the moment we knew would come somewhere down the line. Thought it was going to be a lot more subtle and take a lot longer, but I think unfortunately for the lives that have been affected, unfortunately for the economic toll that it's taking on a lot of people and families and organizations, but not for the fact of the matter, which is I think there's going to be a tremendous number of lives saved going forward, a lot more people living longer, people living better as a result of this happening now, and us actually being in a position of having the last nine years of R&D in digital health and otherwise to be able to be ready for this moment. Yeah. Chris Voss, who spoke at our summit in February, this was the Free Zone Summit in Phoenix, He's got a great line. So, for- by the way, that was my last trip. Right, I went skiing right before that summit, Dan, which <laughs> was our last vacation, and then that was the last trip I took to Arizona. Yeah, it was so funny. I've had a lot of stories about that. You know, <laughs> nobody was thinking about that right then. But Chris has a great line, and he said because you know he was one of the chief hostage negotiators for the FBI for several decades. He was talking about what it's like to actually meet the challenge of being that type of specialist. And he said, one of the things, he says, there's this common term that when there's an emergency or there's a crisis, people rise to the occasion. And he said, it's never true. He said, what you do is you default to your previous highest level of preparation. So Take Chris's concept there and apply it to the level of preparation you were at, which was far superior to anybody else's preparation in the marketplace. Because I think in a minute or two, we'll get to your understanding of just how much progress has been made in eight weeks that you thought would take decades. Yeah. So number one, we were already set up given the fact that we've got companies in 26 countries with a distributed army all around the world connected using digital technologies, whether it's Zoom, which we've been using for years for all of our workshops and sessions and group gatherings, Slack and communities to allow us to asynchronously connect, digital media, written word, podcast, YouTube channels to get the word out. We've been already set up. We didn't have to actually do anything virtually. Even our team is distributed. The 
I'll tell you a little, I call it a fun fact, which is Startup Health was virtual at its beginning, and we actually didn't have a physical office. We actually worked remotely in 2011, 2012, 2013. And as we were growing it, we kind of gave in to kind of having more physical offices. And we felt that one of the reasons we didn't want one was because we had companies all over the world. And so the idea of having one central office didn't really matter because we were always online with them. We actually gave up our WeWork Startup Health Villages actually two weeks ago because not only is the rest of the team, like many of the team, were more productive working wherever they are right now already. And we're already used to that experience. And so virtual team distributed all around the country, virtual community all around the world, very comfortable with connecting every day already on Zoom. Nobody had to get used to that. We've learned some new tricks. We've been very excited that others now adopt and use the same kind of technology so that entrepreneurs can now pitch to investors virtually. And it's an accepted way of talking to an investor. It's not the best way always, but it's hell of a lot more efficient and still effective. Same thing with talking to customers, talking to people as well. So that's one. The community was already a virtual community distributed all around the world, very comfortable with connecting. The second is we already knew that the power of media, and I'm talking about the good news kind and the positive kind and the progress kind, that is really where we've always believed the voice and the platform needed to be for these entrepreneurs to break through and for people to learn about the progress. And you go back to that framework of the Apollo missions in the 60s, television was modern media back then, right? And so people would tune in to see each Apollo mission, good news or bad news, by the way, setbacks or leap forwards, it was broadcast. And so part of our thesis was make sure these stories aren't kept in a vault and by the way, secret, nor quiet. Let's be proudly talking about the progress. We've been doing that for years. Mm -hmm. So we've had this media engine built up, a news network built Mm -hmm. up to tell the stories of progress. Again, check, already ready for that. And then we've also attracted over the years, you know, a couple hundred thousand of the stakeholders that matter most for this audience. They were subscribing to our magazine, following our social media, subscribing to our newsletters, attending our festival, showing up to our virtual showcases. And so all of these things were in place. Now, what's interesting is, because I've noticed this over the past eight weeks, some of the things we've tried but didn't land that well over the last you know, five or six years, like we had Zoom showcases, virtual showcases. We used to call them network access sessions five years ago. But we were doing them and everybody said, this is great, but I want to do it in person. Come to my office, fly across the country, let's host you. So we were doing that and we were having these events and not only the cost of them, but the actual logistics of them made it a lot more difficult for widespread adoption of them. And so once again, we dusted that playbook off and next week we're relaunching our virtual health transformer showcases to an audience of people that you wouldn't be able to bring together within a week, nor have a group of companies you couldn't bring together in a week to showcase COVID-19 and pandemic-related solutions that are in market today that these organizations should be working on. So a lot of these things, the community, the media, and the network have been always set up for this. And now that the rest of the world is kind of operating at that same level, it's an ideal match. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Bye.